Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. In the last episode, we began to look at a series of acts of righteousness that Jesus wants us to be engaged in. These were, of course, already expected devotional practices among the Jewish community, and Jesus has his own take on how these could be done in a better way that brings glory to God. Last time, we looked at the idea of remembering the poor and being generous towards them. In Jesus' words, this was to be done as discreetly as we can. In this episode, we'll look at the next one, and we'll start by reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Think about this for a moment. The God who created the whole world and made it sustainable for human life actually wants us to communicate with Him not merely to him, as in offering mindless monologues to the sky, hoping they hit their target, but with him. We are invited into intimate conversation with the God of the universe. This has always been known to the people of Israel, who are regarded all through the Old Testament as God's chosen covenant people. But again, it appears these first century religious leaders of Israel had gotten off track with their understanding of this. As we consider the setting Jesus is speaking to, it's not too difficult to see how the act of prayer could actually devolve into a theatrical plaything in the wrong hands and mouths. The Pharisees and other Jewish leaders would certainly have felt the pressure of being the designated spiritual leadership of Israel, particularly while the nation sat under a pagan emperor. They would have felt some degree of responsibility to keep prayer and devotion in the mind of the people. So, to keep this happening, loud public prayers from these leaders was apparently quite prevalent in the streets and synagogues of first century Israel. We are told that during the afternoon sacrifices in the temple, trumpets would sound, and those in earshot took this as their cue to pray in those times. It is said that the Pharisees would immediately stop what they were doing. They would turn their faces in the direction of the temple and loudly pray, no matter where they were. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once suggested that these religious leaders wanted to demonstrate that they couldn't even wait till they got to the temple to pray, that they loved prayer so much that the moment the trumpet played, they just could not contain themselves. But to Jesus, something was a little off in this practice. It's almost as if the motivation of these prayers moved from, let's keep this present and active, everyone and let me show you and remind you to do this, to something less noble. Gather round, everyone. Feast your ears on my oratory, beauty, and eloquence. 
To Jesus, these public prayers were no longer a devotional practice, but sadly, a performance. And this explains his use of the word hypocrite. Jesus is calling these people out as play actors, people wearing a spiritual mask, people portraying a character in the public sphere to draw admiration from a gathered crowd. And in Jesus' teaching, we see the approval of God was not going to be found there because seeking approval from man actually comes at the expense of the approval that comes from God. So instead of Pharisaic theatrics, Jesus calls his disciples into something more discreet, something more intimate and real. He says, don't stand in the street, hide and kneel in your closet. Don't seek a community audience to observe your wonderful words. Seek the audience of one that truly matters. And be assured that in the silent, hidden place, the God of all creation is there to hear your prayer and be an active part of your conversation with him. And this idea of conversation is evident in the way Jesus calls us to speak in this setting. Babbling and vain repetition is the idea of filling the air with repetitive words and meaningless mantras. It's often the sort of thing done out of superstition, not faith. And Jesus even uses the word pagan to describe it, because it was common for the worshippers of other gods to engage in prayer that sort of way. So Jesus says, don't do that. Don't fill the air with your own words, thinking the other person in the room with you isn't going to talk back. Treat your time in prayer as an invitation to engage in intimate conversation with your Creator. And be assured, you are conversing with a Creator who knows you intimately. He knows you inside and out, and knows everything that's on your heart, even before you mention it. And if you are looking for how to get that conversation started, Jesus has some great insights to help us there too. Let's keep reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You may have attended church services or other events where this prayer is read out verbatim. You may have memorized it as a child and made it your little prayer before you go to bed. It's a nice little passage to draw comfort from, and it has been recited often for good reason. But what if I told you that there is significant power to be found in this short passage? If you have been a believer for a longer period of time, this should be no real surprise to you. But if you're checking out Christianity from a beginner's or even outsider perspective, I hope you'll come out of this time as excited about this passage as the rest of us are. On paper, this prayer is just 46 words. But in the conversation we are invited to, these few words can serve as a wonderful template for something that you could use for as long as you like to keep the conversation going. When we read Luke's account of this passage, that's in Luke chapter 11, we see that this was taught as a result of the disciples asking Jesus about prayer. Their question to Jesus was this, teach us to pray the way John the Baptist taught his followers to pray. The original language indicates that this was a request not so much for a script, but an object lesson. 
In other words, the disciples were asking for a framework or a practical idea of things that they could be doing in their own personal interaction with God. These 46 words are that framework. As we explore Jesus' words as a framework for prayer instead of a mantra, we see a truly amazing invitation that Jesus is bringing. With this in mind, let's briefly explore what he shows us here. First, address God the way Jesus does. Our Father. Luke's account of this prayer was written for the benefit of pagan Greeks and Romans, who were wondering how they were supposed to relate to the God of the Hebrews and his son, Jesus. The pagans held a fearful view of their gods and believed their responsibility was to appease them. The Hebrews that Matthew's gospel appealed to had a deep reverence for God. To them, he was all holy and knowing, and it is totally understandable that there would be a sense of fearfulness when dealing with God. I think anyone who tries to shrug off his holiness and writes God off as a mere benevolent and unconcerned entity in the sky does so at their peril. Job chapter 28 verse 28 is right. The fear of the Lord certainly is wisdom. But while that is true, there is a downside to that thinking. These same Hebrews had lost that intimate sense of relating to God as a father. The idea of God as a father to Israel was not a new thing from Jesus. It was spoken of often in the Old Testament. But instead of leaning into that, he was feared and the people of God would not dare to go near to him. In the Hebrew, he was given names, Elohim, the exceedingly mighty judge. Yahweh, I am the one. And even though this name was given, it was declared too sacred to even utter. These young Hebrew men under Jesus wanted to interact with God, yet the religious system of the day made that too difficult, so much so that they didn't even know how to address him. So at the very beginning of this framework of prayer, Jesus gives God a very familiar title, an Aramaic word, which was the language used in the local Galilean community. This familiar word was Abba. This was a word used in almost every Jewish home. Some of the men in the audience had actually been addressed this way before they ascended the hill. Abba was the childlike word for a father, what we might translate as daddy. When a child climbs into a father's lap and says, hi, daddy, they have a very simple yet clear concept in their mind of what that word means. Daddy to them is safety and security. Daddy to them is someone in charge, but still seeking the best interest of the child. Daddy is the place of no rejection. And Daddy, Abba, was the name that Jesus used to address his own father in heaven. We are being permitted here to address God in an affectionate child-to-father manner. This was a whole relational paradigm shift for all those being instructed back then, and I dare say, perhaps even today as well. And once we get that relational idea right, Jesus then teaches that there are other points we should acknowledge about God as well. The prayer framework continues like this. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There are three words here that help us consider who God is. Hallowed, kingdom, will. The word hallowed means to make holy. 
This concept takes the familiarity we have with God as Father and teaches us to treat that relationship with great respect. This Father we are invited to interact with still remains the holy God of the universe. Although familiar in a fatherly way, we are not to get to a place where we relegate God to anything less than holy. Once we remember His holiness, we then align ourselves with His sovereignty and His plans and purposes. We are pretty good at elevating our own empires over God's kingdom agenda. We're also pretty good at putting what we want well ahead of what God wants. But this part of the framework calls us to realign all of that so that God's kingdom and His perfect will take pride of place in our lives. Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 9 says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, it's always good to remember that. So we're seeing here that the first half of Jesus' concept of prayer revolves around a full understanding of who God is and where we need to be with him. He's our good heavenly father, and we can come to him in the most childlike of ways. But he is also holy, and we must not diminish that in any way in our minds. He has a father's heart towards us as his children, but he also sets a high standard for us to look to and obey. And we are called to a life of submission to his sovereign rule in all things. Once we get that mindset right, we are then invited to bring the needs of our heart to him, what Jesus calls our daily bread. Bread in this prayer is a metaphorical picture of all the things needed to sustain life. We are invited to bring our needs to this intimate conversation with God, bearing in mind that earlier Jesus said God knows them already. In other words, we are not imposing when we speak these things out. Sometimes our needs are things which are beyond our control. So it's great to know that God is concerned for these things also. And we can bring our needs to God often because Jesus uses the word daily to describe them. We can bring the needs of our present to him right now, and we can count on him for the needs of tomorrow too. Then Jesus invites us to bring our greatest need to him, our debt of sin. The order in which this matter sits in Jesus' framework for prayer is quite intriguing. And after all my years of faith, I'm starting to see something special about this. This framework of prayer invites us to really understand God and his heart for us. Then, when we know those vital things about him, we are then invited to bring the issue of our sin to him. I believe this is strategic. When we know God like we should, then it should lead us to being less guarded and more vulnerable with him. When we know God in the way Jesus teaches us, even the deepest sins and struggles of our lives can come into God's light for forgiveness and healing, and we can be very confident in doing that. And as Jesus guides us towards the end of our personal prayer time, he brings out one major call to action from us, to forgive all those who have done wrong to us. We should be able to do this by this point because we have just gone through the process of being forgiven ourselves. The experience of God's forgiveness to us is more than just offloading our own guilt and shame. 
It is a time where we are also given power to extend this experience to others. Remember this lesson from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Through Jesus and the cross, we are reconciled to God. Through His grace, we are also given a ministry of reconciliation for the benefit of others. There's a lot more to say about that, but I will save that for the next episode. And finally, in our model of prayer, we have something proactive. Keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. In other words, we could conclude our prayer in this sort of way. Lord, I know just how fallible I am. If I'm going to be effective in this world, if I'm going to live as an ambassador for your kingdom, if I'm going to be living in full submission to your will, if I'm going to walk in confidence of your sufficiency in my life, and if I'm going to live like I'm forgiven and be a forgiving person, then I'm going to need you to keep me safe from the forces that want to see me fail. So Lord, guard my hands and my eyes. Guard the places I go and the people I see. Guard my emotions. Make me more self-aware. Help me remember my frailty. Show me the right way to go and hold the influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil at bay all around me. So, to sum up the Lord's Prayer model for us, and pray the way Jesus calls us to, try this. First, call Him Father. Make Him holy, hallowed. Make Him sovereign by acknowledging His kingdom. Make yourself second by submitting to His will. Reveal your heart by bringing your needs to Him. Heal your heart by receiving and extending forgiveness. And guard your heart by being proactive about temptation. I'll have more to share about this topic in the next episode. But for now, may your next conversation with the Lord be a truly productive and powerful one. I won't finish with a word of prayer here like I usually do. Instead, I will leave you to go and start yours. I pray your next prayer time will be a truly enriching one. God bless. I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.